All right, we're in James, chapter 5. So this is the oldest book in the New Testament in terms of its age. James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, unsaved before he viewed the resurrected Son of God. Transformed by that reality, he was known as James the Just because of his integrity, his honor. He was known as Camel Knees because of his propensity to pray. He was a praying man, and he was also the leader, the chief spokesman, you could argue, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, the mother church. It was in Acts 15 when the question was, what is the gospel? What's required for the gospel? Do you need to keep Old Testament law in order to be saved? And it was there that that question was resolved by the apostles and the elders at the church at Jerusalem. And when it was finally said and done, James stood up and made the declaration, the summary declaration, that there was no Old Testament law compliance required to be a part of the family of God. It was through Jesus Christ, a satisfactory work, not your work attached to his work. It's not grace plus something. It's not merit related to your righteous behavior. It is the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is perfectly acceptable, granted to you as a gift by God's unmerited favor. Don't earn it, don't deserve it. James was the spokesman that said, this is the declaration foundational to the early church. You're going to have to pay attention to some of the practices that you would have as a believer so as not to somehow create an obstacle to that good news. You know, the Jews were concerned about animals and the blood in the animal, and so he talked about being careful of your witness, not as a condition for salvation, but as a tool for influence. So James is a player, and he's writing this little book, five chapters, which we have journeyed in and out of over these last few years, in an effort to help align those who have been saved by that grace, who have been dispersed like seed, diaspora, throughout the Asian, the Asia Minor Empire, the Roman Empire, people of God converted at Jerusalem, persecuted in Jerusalem, fleeing for their life and safety, and they are all over the civilized world. And James has apparently heard reports about their conduct, their propensity to live in a particular way that I think as a pastor and as maybe a, a prophetic spokesman, as a brother in Christ, he writes to the people of God scattered like seed because of persecution and said, listen, if you really have faith, this is what that saving faith looks like. Works do not save you. This is the big idea in the book of James. But works are necessary if you're saved. Genuine faith works. And if your faith is genuine... It thinks a particular way, and it lives a particular way. It does certain things, and it doesn't do other things. So this is about saving faith. This is about genuine faith. This is not about, I say it, but I don't have it. If I say it, it needs to look like this. So this is a kind of a gospel life primer. 
explaining how you're to live in the various categories of your life. These are truth perspectives, and here's a key statement, which prove your faith, perfect your faith, and allow you to evaluate your faith. So this is the standard of measure. This is how real faith works and how genuine Christians should live. And if you've been with me for a while, my favorite title is, This is the Lifestyle, and These are the Convictions of a Biblical Christian. This is what it has to look like, and it involves every aspect of your life. Faith properly understood is integrated in all of life, and it shows up in everything. Christianity is life. And it informs and it influences all of your life. And this is what it looks like. This is how you think. And so that's the journey we've been on in the little epistle of James. We're beginning chapter 5 this morning. And we're going to get a running start because there's some connective themes. As he gets to the end of chapter 4... I'm going to argue that the big idea that he ends chapter 4 with is stop playing God. Don't assume a place that doesn't belong to you, both in the lives of others and in your own life. Verse 11, do not speak, chapter 4, getting a running start, we're coming to chapter 5. Do not speak against one another, don't talk down. That's negative speak. He who speaks against a brother, which requires judging or judges his brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. Whose law? God's law. So you're usurping the will of God revealed in the law of God. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. You've become a judge of it. You're assuming authority that's not yours. And he capitalizes or punctuates that reality, verse 12, don't act like God, creating your own law, judging the law that has been given you, because there is only, verse 12, one lawgiver and judge. Who is that? The one who is able to save and to destroy. God is able to save. God is able to judge and destroy. God is the one who alone is the lawgiver and the law judger but who are you to judge your neighbor? So don't play God in the lives of other people. Don't make assessments that are not yours to make. You're not qualified. You don't know enough, and you don't have the capacity to execute justice. God alone does. Don't do it. It violates the law, and it usurps the role of God. Verse 13, don't play God in your own life. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You do not yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. To presume that you know the future, to make plans without God in your future, 
to behave in a way that's not humbly recognizing both the vapor-like quality, the brevity of, the vulnerability of your life, to make any assumptions about tomorrow is presuming on God's unique space in your life. It's wrong and it's arrogant. Let, let me give you some summary statements from these two paragraphs that real Christians think and live like. Real Christians don't play God with others by tearing down others with their words or standing in judgment of them. Genuine faith, saving faith, the faith that saves displays the law of love in how it treats others with words and judgments. So don't make a claim about Christianity that's incongruous with that reality. Number two, the paragraph we just looked at, chapter 4, 13 through 17, real Christians do not play God with themselves, in other words, in their own life, by proudly and presumptuously doing their own thing, but rather are humbly dependent on God who's doing His thing. Genuine faith is proven, here it is, by daily dependence and an absence of willful, I will run my life arrogance. Real Christianity is desperately dependent and humbly recognizes that God rules. I don't know what a day will bring forth. Any claim on tomorrow is a boast that is not mine to make. God rules. My days are numbered just like the hairs on my head. So are yours. True Christianity doesn't make any assumption about tomorrow. It's not purposed on things that are presumptive. It is focused on the reality that God is in charge of tomorrow. I am submitted to his lordship and his will. And I act like that. I think like that. I pray like that. I make choices and plans like that. Listen, not bad to plan. The point is you plan without God, acting as if you have control like God. Real Christians, thirdly, and our focus for today, don't have a false God. Real Christians don't play God, and they don't set up a false God of things. They don't hoard their stuff, and I'm going to give you the big idea at the beginning. So this is what we're going to see unpacked. This is James' bottom line. This is, I think, the revelation of this paragraph by way of its truth and content. Real Christians don't have a false God of things. They don't hoard their stuff, but generously use it and honestly steward it. Genuine faith is proven by how you invest and steward the resources that have been given to you. I put a little two-word statement at the end of this. Money talks. We hear, put your money where your mouth is. What you say about money and the priorities that you pursue as it relates to things, material things, it speaks to what is and who is God in your life. That's the summary thought. Let's read the paragraph, and then I'll try to unpack it for you in ways that are both practical and helpful. 
Verse 1, chapter 5. Come now. All right, you saw come now in verse 13. Come now. These, these two words introduce the reality that James is trying to talk to a particular group of people. I'm going to argue that the folks he's talking to at the end of chapter 4, and you know there's no formal chapter breaks in the original autographs. The, the truth, the revelation just continues. The come now in verse 13 of chapter 4 involves people who are pursuing monetary resource, money, profit. We're going to go to such and such a city, we're going to do business there, and we're going to make a killing. It has to do with acquiring resources. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, come now, I think, to the same group of people. Only now the label is you're not just chasing money, you have money. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you. And I will consume your flesh and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days, talking to the rich, that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the Lord, the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure, and you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. End of the paragraph. Come now, you rich. Come now is a verbal cue to get your attention with a weighty warning and a graphic truth reality. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Weep and howl have two ideas, two words, communicating deep, big, real anguish. Like if you really see the reality that you're in, present tense, it is coming on you. If you weigh the reality of the weight of it, it will cause you emotional trauma that ought to be expressed in how you respond to the reality that you see. These are the words used when Herod killed the children of Israel looking to exterminate the son of Mary. And the women wailed and they howled because every child under the age of two, every son was murdered, killed. And so those words are used in expressing the pain, the slaughter of those infants. This is uh, Matthew two seventeen. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice of, was, is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Great mourning is howling. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's that kind of anguish. This uh, anguish is used by Jeremiah in chapter 4 
when he calls the people of God to wail and howl because your cities, this is chapter 4, verse 7, Jeremiah, your cities will be reduced to ruins. They will lie uninhabited because there's an invasion from the north. So put on your sackcloth, mourn and wail, weep and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not been turned away from you. It's interesting, Jeremiah uses these same words again in the latter portion of his book. He says, wake up you drunkards, weep and howl, all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. In other words, what you live for is being taken away from you. This is judgment from God that is eminent. You can see it coming, and the losses are great, like the slaughter of those children. It is catastrophic consequences. And the reason I'm punctuating this is because I think most of the time, it's certainly true for me, you're inclined to discount a failure of biblical stewardship. Who are the rich in this passage? Number one, it has to do with people who have an abundance, more than they need. Number two, the context of this, they are the materialistic rich. Because of the context, it tells you what are the attributes of the rich. Because the rich in this passage has to do with the materialistic rich. Listen, you can have abundance. Job had an abundance. You have Abraham had an abundance. It's not about having stuff. It's how you look at that stuff, and it's how you acquire that stuff. This is about elevating the stuff as such a priority that in it I find my pleasure. In it I find my security. With it I I defend or I hedge against the future because I have assets unused just in case. This is the materialistic rich. I would like to say it this way. These are those who pursue the false god of stuff and things as the means to their identity, security, and satisfaction. I'm going to say that again because it's important to understand to whom he is speaking. It's not about abundance. It's about the Focus on having an abundance, the priority of having an abundance. It is written to those who pursue the false God of stuff and things as the means to their identity, their security. The garments speak to their identity. Garments had to do with the dress and the clothing I wear that defines my prestige and my priority. If it doesn't have a designer label on it, it doesn't speak to the priority I wish it to reflect in terms of my identity. That's the way the garments are to be understood here. The means to their identity, their security. The gold that is rusting, and gold doesn't rust, it has to do with tarnish. It has to do with the idea that it is demonstrating its lack of use. It's hoarded. For, for what? Security. How much money do you have to have to be safe enough 
That's the idea. How can I hedge against the future? And because of the verse 5, you live luxuriously on the earth, led a life of wanton pleasure. It has to do with the satisfaction I extract from the assets that I accumulate. You're worldly, in other words. He's writing to worldly, professing believers where money and things are the chief lever they deploy in order to have identity, security, and satisfaction. Not all rich men, that's not to whom he is speaking, but only that class of them who are specified as unjust and oppressive. There is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists, particularly among the rich, it arises from the manner in which that wealth is acquired and the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart and in the way in which it is used, its function. Money cannot buy happiness. Money cannot buy love. Money has an inherent weakness, and yet the propensity is, if I have it, I'll acquire what it is I long for. Contextually, materialism is revealed by a passion for accumulation as a chief means for pleasure and satisfaction, and you also see it in the latter part of this, and by the dishonest means employed for its acquisition. Your laborers, the pay of those laborers who mowed your fields, they're crying out because you're not paying. So weep and how? Deep pain in view of real catastrophic and eminent loss, like the enemies of God's judgment coming. You can see them coming. And what James wants to do is to say, you're professing Christian and you're materialist in terms of your approach to wealth and means and resource. You need to look up. Come now. I want you to reason with me. On the horizon is eminent consequence, catastrophic consequence. This is not meant as hyperbole, hyperbole, exaggerated, weep and howl. But I'll tell you what, if somebody was killing your children today, you'd be weeping and howling. If the enemies were on the edge of the city, on the threshold of destruction and captive, captive capturing us, there would be weeping and howling. This is not meant as hyperbole, but the reasonable reaction to a potential reality. These words reflect the response to a terminal diagnosis with a horrific outcome. And if you're rich, materialistically rich, in other words, your passions and appetites have to do with acquiring of things and the dishonest way you acquire those things and the way that you idolize those things, come now. You need to recognize the jeopardy that you're in. That's the warning of the passage written to believers and written to those who claim to be believers. And I'm going to argue at the end of chapter 4 that people who divorced the sovereignty of God and humility before God to go chase a bottom line are living as an unbeliever would live. And those who elevate stuff and resources that secure experiences as the priority of life the means to prestige, the means for protection, the means to plenty, living luxuriously, the means to pleasure, wanton pleasure, 
Real Christians may have wealth, but they do not waste it. And they do not prioritize or idolize it. Real Christians may have wealth, but they don't waste it through misuse, no use, or abuse. Those are the three things you're going to see that characterize the materialistic rich. So I've labeled this lesson the meaning of the miseries of the materialistic. This is the benefit that the miseries of the materialistic, as articulated here by James, how that recognition will help inform and define real Christianity. The materialistic rich, here's the first big idea under that, the materialistic rich face future misery in view of divine accountability for the misuse of their earthly responsibility. The reason the materialistic rich have cause for misery is a future reality. The materialistic rich face future misery in view of divine accountability for the misuse of their earthly responsibility. How for the miseries, verse 1, which are coming upon you. They're on their way. It's imminent. It's like a storm cloud on the horizon. I'm not going to suggest that you can't repent. I think the purpose of the paragraph, repent. Don't live this way. Don't be confused that you can be a Christian and live this way. And if you're not a Christian, don't continue to live this way. Repent. Because the outcome of not repenting is catastrophic. And then he's going to articulate verse 2. Your riches have rotted. Your riches have rotted. Why have they rotted? They're not worn out, your garments. It's not because you're wearing them a lot. You're working in them. You're not using them. They're hanging in the closet and they're decaying because you've accumulated more than you need. And as I already highlighted, garments were a tool that would establish priority or prestige. If I dress a particular way, I have a certain number of garments, I have a different outfit for every occasion, you never see me wear the same shoes twice, you never see me wear the same... All of that is designed to elevate and create a sense of high honor. And that accumulation of more than I need, what you're warned about here, the stuff is rotted. It's decayed because it's hanging somewhere and the moths are getting to it. Your priority is focused on acquiring things, but you're not using those things. You actually don't need those things. You guys familiar with... uh, Minimalism. You know, that whole idea, and there's people that are minimalists where they have hardly anything, and then you have what's called a rational minimalist, which is a person who says, you know what, it's okay to have some things, but just 
only have so many of those things. And then there's some Japanese author gal who says they must produce joy. And I forget all this. <laughs> like, don't keep it if there's not inspiration of joy and, and brings life. Give it away. Uh, do something with it valuable, but don't just accumulate it because stuff you accumulate burdens you. But I'll tell you what else it does. It indicts you. And stuff does decay, right? I mean, I got, I've got some, I'm a motorcyclist. Some of you know that. I like the performance of a motorcycle. And I was in the closet the other day, commissioned by Mrs. Walls to minimalize the closet with the motor. How many of those do you need, Harry? <laughs> well, when you're my age, you accumulate over time. And I went to one of my favorites. It has the brand I like. It's the bike I ride. I pulled that out of the closet, and the whole back of a leather jacket, it, it, it was lined in this kind of, at one time, cool liner that had all decayed and crumbled as this black soot-like material. I put it on, and it all stuck to me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. It was, oh, I like this jacket. But its absence of use made it of no use. He's talking about things you have more than you have that you don't use. That's why they're rotting. That's why the moths can get on them, because you're not using them. So he's talking about the plenty that doesn't require you to use them. It's accumulated. And I want you to notice what else it says as he continues in verse 3. Your gold and your silver have rusted, tarnished. And their rust will be a witness against you. What's he talking about? He's talking about assets that you've stored away that you do not use. It's sitting somewhere, unused, just like the clothes were unused. It's tarnished because it's not being invested. And let me give you a big bottom line in the economy of God as revealed in the New Testament. Whatever you have is a gift from God. God gives you the power to make wealth or to have things. But those things are granted to you as a trust. They are a stewardship to be used for the king's purposes. Biblical stewardship is not about having a lot. It's about if I have a lot, I need to use that a lot for the kingdom of God. I need to be an investor, not an accumulator. Real Christians may have wealth, but they don't waste it through misuse, no use, or abuse. They don't hoard their stuff. They generously use their stuff, and they honestly steward it because they recognize they were entrusted with it to invest it, and they are accountable for it. That's the mindset of a biblical Christian. Turn back with me to Matthew 25, uh, I just want to highlight a couple of things for the benefit of your calibration of this passage with the season in which James is writing, because James is talking out of a context of what he had learned as a disciple of Jesus Christ. However short, he was exposed to the truth of his Savior, his Lord, his Master, his half-brother. And in uh, Matthew 25... 
This is a parable that Jesus told. Most of you are familiar with it. I just want to highlight it because it's contextually connected. Verse 14, Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, the kingdom that's ruled by heaven, begins in chapter 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like. This is the second installment on what the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 14, it is like, it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his own possessions to him. So you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? It's about this man, this person, the owner of it all, leaving for a season to go on a long journey. And before he leaves, he takes his assets and he entrusts it. Do you see that word? It's paradidomy. It means to give by being alongside. It's a personal entrustment. It's a personal gift. It's not like go to the table and pick it up. It's no, I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to say, this is mine. This is my phone. It's got all my good stuff in it and I'm giving it to you. It's a trust. Take care of it. It's yours to use. Who does it belong to? It belongs to me. But I'm giving it to you, para. I'm coming alongside, and I am personally entrusting this to you. Do you get the idea? That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's a like a man, which would refer to Jesus, who was is the king of the kingdom, and he's going to leave for a while until he returns. And until he returns, he's entrusting assets to his slaves. Now, the kingdom of God is full of slaves. And if you're a Christian in the kingdom of God, you know one of the identity labels you have? Slave. You're looking at a slave. Paul said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Peter said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. James said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Jude, the other, another half-brother of Jesus Christ, begins his book by saying, I'm a slave of God. John the Apostle at the beginning of the book of the Revelation says he is a slave of Jesus Christ writing to fellow slaves, Revelation. And at the end of the Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, you have the gathering around the river of life and you have slaves worshiping God. Do you know who they are? Every kingdom citizen, every born-again person is forever a slave. Do you know when you get to heaven, you're still going to be a slave? But you've got the, the universe's, beyond the universe's greatest master, and that's the greatest position you can ever possess. Your identity, we are unprofitable servants doing that which is our duty to do. That is what you are for life. Every born-again Christian recognizes that I'm a slave. And I'm not talking about abusive slavery. I'm not talking about slave ships and shackles. I'm talking about purchased by price, made by the Creator, belongs to the Creator, ransomed and redeemed by the Creator, I belong to him. And if you're a Christian, you belong to him. And as a belong to him person, you're his slave. And as his slave, he dispenses assets to you. Not the same as the person sitting next to you or the person that you 
go to church with or do Bible study with, but unique. Look at verse 15. To one he gave. You see that? To one. This is what the kingdom of God is like. He gave his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents. Talent is a weight or measure. It's a big weight or a big measure. It has to do with a, 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 an amount of it. Could be gold, could be, could be other types of assets. It hasn't to do with the fact that it's an asset. It's just a lot of the asset, five of them, to another two, and then to, to another one. Now look at the end of verse 15, each according to his own ability. So it's unique. What Harry Walls has is what God, the master, wanted to entrust to me based on his view of me and what he desired to give me. What you have is what God wants you to have. You know I'm trying to learn to play the guitar, and I'm still trying to develop those calluses. But I listen to people with musical talent, and I go, man, I was in the wrong line. Nobody gave me that. People play by ear. People play with rhythm. Harry hasn't any of that. What's up with that? The master entrusted to me what is mine to steward based on his sovereign perspective on what he wanted me to have, the asset he wanted me to steward. Some of you are really good with math. Some of you are really good with tech. Some of you are really good with people. Some of you are really, you, you have your strengths. You should know them. That's your stuff. Supernatural talents, we call them spiritual gifts. Natural talents, what God gave me because of the DNA and the propensity and the capacity that he's given me, run fast, jump high, shoot it, kick it, hit it, throw it, make money with it. You have acumen that you've been entrusted. Who gave that to you? God gave that to you. As a slave, he entrusted those as his possessions given to you. Are you tracking with me? So when you're rich, let's go all the way back to James. Stay in Matthew because I want to highlight something else. But when you're rich, you have assets that he's given to you. The Lord gives you the Deuteronomy 8. The Lord gives you the power to make wealth. If you have it, God's allowing you to make it. There's a lot of smart people, maybe smarter than you, who have made less than you, made bankrupt because God didn't gift them with the stewardship of the assets that their acumen would imply they should be able to secure. So it's not about being smart. It's about God giving what he wants you to have. So immediately, verse 16, this is what the kingdom of God, this is a parable, this is a story to help you understand how it works. Immediately the one, verse 16, received the five talents, went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Do you see his master's money? It doesn't say his money. His master's money. Verse 19, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. This is what the kingdom of God's like. I'm gone. I'm giving to you, my slave, assets that belong to me. Your job is to immediately take and leverage those assets for my kingdom purposes. And I'm coming back. And we're going to sit down. Settled accounts has to do with opening papers and files and going, let's see, Harry. 
What is it that I gave to you? And what did you do with what I gave to you? Well, it's in the bank. Or I got these really cool motorcycle jackets. So tell me again how is those jackets were going to leverage my kingdom. There's going to be that day. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is not on the authority of Harry the slave. This is on King Jesus, the master of all slaves. So imagine I've got tarnishing gold and silver unused. I've got accumulated garments, rotting, moth-eaten, and I'm going to have to account for those assets. The reason James comes out of the gate saying, come now, you rich, weep and howl, is because you are accountable and you're wasting your stewardship. And real Christians don't hoard their stuff. They do business with their stuff. They advance the kingdom with their stuff. They don't fixate it on, as a means of, on it as a means of prestige, protection, security, pleasure. They leverage it and they use it. And you know what happens to the guy who buries the treasure when he was accounting for his failure. Verse 24, and one who had received the one talent, came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. He's questioning the character of the master. You don't have a right to this. You just take what you don't even earn. As if he doesn't understand that it was the master's to begin with. He has a skewed view of his stewardship because of the one, how he views the one who gave it to him. But his master, look at verse 26, chapter 25. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. Lazy is the word procrastinate. You had it, you didn't use it. You had good intentions, but they never ever were realized. Wicked has to do with your true condition of heart. Not a righteous guy, an unrighteous guy. You knew what, that I reap where I did not sow, you, you, and gather where I scattered no seed, Verse 27, here's what I wanted you to see. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, not buried in the ground. You ought at least to give to somebody who's making money with money. If you're not going to work and invest it, give it to somebody who will work and invest it. Some return on my money, at least I would have received it back with interest. Verse 28, therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. So faithfulness, stewardship, results in greater privilege. Verse 29, But for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, because he's wasted it, buried it, misused it, even what he does have shall be taken away. Here's a sobering thing. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know why you ought to weep and howl? Because a failure of stewardship is an indicator that there is no relationship. 
This is a worthless slave because his focus wasn't on the master, wasn't the fulfillment of the trust. It was self-interest, wicked and worthless. And you know who that guy is? Not in the kingdom. You know what the future of that guy is? Catastrophic. Do you remember who's talking? The king of the kingdom says to his disciples, this is what the kingdom of God is like. James is saying weep and howl because if this is the status of your life as you measure your life through your stuff, your future, your future is tragic. Go back to James. Let's continue to unpack the truths that are found here. That's why he says in this passage... It will consume your flesh like fire. This indictment will result in the consuming of your flesh like fire. The presumption of that is hell-like judgment. And it is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. So you're laying up treasure for the last days that results in tragedy, loss, and pain. Future misery, the misery of the materialistic is they will be be held accountable. Do you guys know about Wounded Warriors, the Wounded Warriors Project? It's a, a group that was established in order to support injured military who have suffered loss because of their service, and this group was established as a charity in order to provide for those disabled, harmed, and in need servicemen and women. Do you know what happened to their founding CEO and their founding CFO? Do you know where they are today? Jail. Do you know why they're in jail? Because they took $40 million of the profit of the income of wounded warriors and they spent it on lavish parties and they spent it on lavish amenities. $40 million. That's an abuse of stewardship. Somebody wrote about those two guys and said they can't keep them in jail long enough. The level of failure to steward assets entrusted for the good of others is incomprehensible. You know what else is incomprehensible? Slaves who take a trust and bury it. Slaves who take a trust and try to advance their situation by accumulation. Slaves who take their, their stuff as a trust and they abuse others to grow that trust. Failure of stewardship, misuse and abuse. Last days is the undeniable evidence in your final life evaluation that as a steward, you have mismanaged and misappropriated the master's assets by prioritizing self. You've stored treasure for the future that involves tragedy, regret, and pain. You guys remember Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus? Jesus said, remember that thou in your lifetime received the good things, the rich man, 
and Lazarus in like manner, evil things. He had a rough life. But now he, Lazarus, is comforted, and you are in anguish. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let me give you the second big idea of miseries involved here. What can you learn, the meaning of the misery of the materialistic? The materialistic rich face present misery because of material insecurity. The stuff they're relying on is not reliable. So it's not just future accountability, it's material insecurity. Proverbs 23, verse 5, riches certainly make themselves wings. Flies away. First Timothy chapter 6, written to believers, as it relates to how you're to view monetary assets. In First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, godliness is actually a means of great gain when it is accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. So what Paul's arguing for is godliness is good, but it must be accompanied by contentment. A lack of contentment can drive you to acquire and desire, verse 9. But the adversative, not content, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So it's not just future accountability. It's a present destructive reality. 4, verse 10, here's the ground or reason for their destruction because the love of money, the pursuit of it, is a root of all sorts of evil. It doesn't say having money. It says loving it. And some by longing for it, as if it's life, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 11, flee from these things. What things? The temptation and seduction of things. That if I have more of it, if I have enough in the bank, then somehow I'll be content. Flee from that mentality. And the temptations and the seductions that complement it or accompany it. Flee from these things. Instead, man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Faith fights with the temptation of the seduction of things. The love of money. Fight that. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. One of the outcomes of good stewardship and resisting the appetite for things and the idolization of things is you'll take hold of the life that's truly life. And notice what he goes on to say, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Remember, rich is you have more than you need. And I know need is a relative term. How many jackets do I need? How many shoes do I need? How many dresses or jackets do I need? I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let you wrestle with that. 
Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Watch this. Or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Don't make money the means of your security. You know, I get these articles since I'm 65, so everybody knows I'm at retirement age. I just can't retire. I like what I do, but everybody thinks I need to figure out how much money I need to make it the rest of the way. I need not to depend on a particular number, but on the God who provides what I need. And I know I'm messing if you're a financial planner and I'm hurting you right now. And I don't mean to do that. I'm trying to direct God's people to, to, think, to think in a way. It says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Does anybody think we're on a trajectory economically that's sustainable? Because I'd like to talk to you afterward. What you have saved what you have earned, what you're dependent upon is vulnerable. Don't fix your hope on that. And I had time today and I've used up my time. I could quote one person after another who had a lot and lost a lot. Don't fix your hope on that, but on God. Do you see that? Circle words in your Bible. I circled God in green. Who richly supplies us with what? All things to enjoy. The master entrusting assets to be enjoyed. God is not a God killjoy. But this is what he instructs. Verse 18, this is what I wanted to finish with today. Instruct them to do good. This is what you do with the assets you're entrusted. You don't fix your hope on them because they can fly away. They're uncertain. And you do good with them. You invest them. You do business with them. You do good with them to be rich. Do you see this? Not rich in assets. Rich in what? Good works. The assets that I have shouldn't be tarnishing. They should be working. Rich in good works. To be generous. Liberal. And ready to share. Anxious. I've got it. I'm anxious to share it. You need it. I'll be generous with it. I have more than I need. Anybody need a motorcycle jacket? I've got more than I need. I'll give you a good one, too. I won't give you the one that's coming apart. You need a helmet? i got that, too. This is what a Christian thinks like about the stuff they've been entrusted with. It's not life to me. It's an entrusted stewardship from God to me. And the purpose of it is to leverage it for the good of others, to be generous with it, to be anxious. Last verse, verse 19. I know you've got to go to church and you've got to beat those other people to your seat. <laughs> Look at what it says as a consequence of that. This is a participle which modifies these actions you're instructed to take. Storing up for themselves. 
the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Today, tomorrow, and into eternity, but I love this, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Let me tell you where life isn't. Your wardrobe. Life isn't in the house you live in and the car that you drive. It's not in the stuff you accumulate. It's in the investment of that stuff for the kingdom of God and the good of people. And the reason the material rich are miserable or are challenged with future misery that ought to evoke wailing and howling is because the accountability day is coming and it'll be undesirable, painful, and eternal. And because the stuff you're accumulating, it has wings. It has wings. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. But I'll tell you what it does. It has the power to do good if you'll do good with it. And that's the first part of James 5, 1 through 6. There's two more pieces to this. Now you know why it's taken me so long to travel through the book of James. Father, thank you for the amazing grace that called us the grace that entrusts to us kingdom assets. We are fearfully and wonderfully made and we are gifted, whoever we are, each of us, with supernatural ability called spiritual gifts dispensed by your spirit for the profit of all, various effects, various ministries, but nonetheless supernatural. We have it. And you expect us to invest it. And then, Lord, there's the natural assets we have and the resources that you give to us. Yes, they are meant to be enjoyed. And they're also meant to be invested, not accumulated and not wasted. Lord, remind us today how a Christian should think, what they pursue, and how they use what they have. Lord, bless us with the ability to bless others. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great Sunday.